Welcome to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. They're a league of lady lawyers in an all-female law firm in Omaha, Nebraska called Hightower Ref Law. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of what it's like to be a lady lawyer and an entrepreneur. Now it's time to talk about the law, share real-life stories about representing clients, and discuss the current events of the week. It's the Lady Lawyer League podcast with Susan Ref and Tracy Hightower Henny. On today's podcast, we are going to discuss what happens if you die without a will. And today, Tasha Hevekin is here with me. Good morning. Good morning, Tasha. It's good. It's uh, bright and early this morning. I got up and went to the dentist before I came in. (laughs) So my dentist does 7 a.m. appointments, which I appreciate because I like to get it over with. But so So my, my teeth are fresh and clean this morning. So was this a routine exam or something big? No, routine exam. So, you know, you got to get in there twice a year and get cleaned up and polished and all that so did that this morning so I have to go to the dentist more than twice a year for cleanings because you want to or because they make you confession um I have real excuse me I have really bad teeth not for lack of trying like it's like genetic um so I have I have gum disease and so I have to go four times a year at a minimum just to get my teeth cleaned because apparently my mouth likes to harbor lots of bacteria in my gums. So I go four times a year for cleaning and then anything on top of that. Interesting. So in talking with my hygienist this morning, I learned two things. One is that so much of our teeth health is actually genetic. Yes. So And so when I was born um, as an infant, I had super high fevers. And because of that, I have no enamel on my teeth. And so oh, wow. mine, So I have a lot of fillings just because at a very early age, my teeth were not protected and there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it. Huh. Um, and the second thing that I learned is that there are actually people that come into the dentist and say, you know, they always ask you, do you floss? Do you brush? Yeah. And people lie. Except for apparently there are people that come in and say, yeah, I don't brush my teeth. Well, you know, if you're going to go to a doctor, you should probably be honest with what you're doing, right? That's true. But then also, like, how are you talking to people? And like, when you're wearing your mask, do you not smell your breath and realize like, oh, oh, my goodness, I'm I'm projecting that smell out into the world for people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The breath, the bad breath problem is... How do they even have teeth left, right? Right. And that's the thing is she's, when we were talking about this whole genetics thing, she's like, what's interesting is there's people that will come in here and say, I do not brush my teeth. And it's very evident they don't because I have to work very hard to get the plaque off. Yeah. She goes, and they've never had a cavity. So uh, another confession, my husband is not got the best routine. Like they're, he'll forget to brush his teeth sometimes, or he's like, I'm so tired. I'm just going straight to bed. And he doesn't brush his teeth, you know. Twice a day. Now, I he brushes his teeth at least once a day. Sure. I think I've never seen him floss. He doesn't routinely go to the dentist. I think he's had one cavity in his whole life. He's just genetically on the, the plus side of the dental right. ga- gods of getting good teeth. <sighs> and he didn't have to have braces. That would have been... Oh, if that was a lottery, I would have wanted to win that one, I think. Yeah. I, I have a lot of fillings also. And so we're already talking about like having... Right crowns yes I have a few crowns me too I have temporary fillings that have been temporarily in there for 20 years <laughs> so I, I didn't I know that was to. a thing yeah my dentist keeps telling me um these were probably supposed to be temporary and I'm like well 
I don't even remember when I got them. That's how long ago they were put in there. So now we have to talk, have that conversation about getting crowns and, you know, because my teeth in the back, because they were ruined from my lack of enamel. Right. Yeah. Wow. So that'll be fun. But it's kind of exciting because then hopefully my smile will be better. Right. Yeah. I just started with a new dentist. I fired my old dentist because he kept moving his office further and further away from where it was convenient for me to go. And now it's almost out by where you live uh, in Council Bluffs. Okay. And so I'm like, I am not driving all the way out there to go to the dentist. See, my dentist, so I live, as you said, in Council Bluffs, but my dentist is on like 78th and Dodge. And all <laughs> we, we're like crossing paths uh, to are. go to the dentist. We are. But I really like my dentist and he's great with my kids. So yeah. like all four of us oh, go yeah. there and... You know, my kids are really great about going to the dentist and they love it there and the people are great. Yeah. And so and I actually had, you know, some pretty traumatic experiences as a kid with dentists. And Ooh. so for as a young adult, I would avoid going to the dentist yes. because I just had all these memories of how terrible it was. And so when I first found this dentist, I went in there and I said, full disclosure, I'm your craziest patient. So just <laughs> be ready. And so they have all kinds of notes in my file. I like the water pick. I only like certain hygienists, you know. Yes. But yes. But it's worked out and it's great. And you know, so we we like it. So I I'm, I'm loath to change my dentist. Yeah. So we do the drive. It well, it was hard, and I um I also switched to a woman, um, because I prefer to work with women professionals, just to women supporting women. But I also have heard women have smaller hands. Yes. And the studies have shown that going to a woman dentist is supposed to be less painful. So anyway, and she's right across the street. So oh, that helps too. So your smile's beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's switch to see what happens if you die and you don't have a will. And like, I'm assuming this is all governed, every state's gonna be different, right? So yes. in Nebraska, if you don't have a will, and you die, you still have to go through probate, right? Well, it depends. So the lawyer answer, right. it depends. It always just depends, yeah. right? So without a will, sometimes you'll hear the term intestacy, and that means literally without a will, versus if you hear somebody say that they died in, or excuse me, testate, testate means that you did have a will. And I feel so, like this is starting to get a little dirty. Right. <laughs> Like medical terms for certain male body parts, right. it sounds like. So Not intentional. Intestate is no will. Correct. Testate is there is a will. Correct. Okay. And then in terms of whether or not we have to go to probate, there's typically three questions that we ask. And probate, what's probate mean for people that don't know? So probate is the process within the court system that is used to transfer assets of a person who died to the ultimate beneficiaries. And then typically paying off creditors is also part of that. So like if the person who died had a credit card, yeah, that the credit card company is going to file a claim and then they get paid out of the estate, that type of thing. Okay. So, and the probate laws are going to be based on which state that you lived in at the time that you died. So for example, if you're a resident of the state of Nebraska and you die, then the Nebraska laws are going to apply to your estate with the exception that let's say I am a resident of Nebraska and I die but I also own property in Arizona. The oh. land, the land is going to be governed by the law of the state where it is located. Let me ask you this. 
okay, you live in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Mm-hmm. You work in Omaha, Nebraska. You're here a lot. What if you're in a car accident and die in Omaha? Where would your... My estate would be approbated in Iowa because okay. that's my residence. That's where my domicile is, is the fancy word. So Iowa law is going to control the distribution of all of my real estate in Iowa and all of my personal property. Okay. So, for example, if I have a bank account that I had opened in Rhode Island for some unknown reason, yeah, money, cash, is personal property. So it's going to still be transferred based on Iowa law. Whereas if I owned land in Rhode Island then that land would be transferred based on Rhode Island law. Okay. But the fact that you died in Nebraska really wouldn't matter in that situation. Correct. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Yep. It's based on where you live. So when we're talking about whether or not we have to go through the probate process, whether you have a will or not, the three questions we're going to ask, what are the assets of the person who died? How are they titled? And how much are they worth? Because in Nebraska and in most states, you know, a lot of these terms are going to be kind of across the board, right? So in Nebraska, at least, the floor or ceiling, however you look at it, is $50,000 in personal property and $50,000 in real estate. And these, these things that we have to look at for assets, sometimes it seems like this should be pretty obvious. What did somebody own? Correct. But it's not, right? (laughs) <laughs> right. And sometimes the information can get be difficult to get. For example, you know, like brokerage account and retirement account holders, a lot of times they don't want to give you the information, right? Especially if there's beneficiaries listed on the accounts. Oh, They're not right. going to want to tell somebody who's not the beneficiary. Yeah. Which matters for inheritance tax purposes, which is a whole nother conversation. But, you know, but in terms of and why titling is so important with probate is because the probate court, whether you have a will or not, only controls probate assets. And probate assets are assets that are owned by the deceased person only that have no beneficiaries. So as an example, if you own a home with someone else, a typical example is a spouse. Mm -hmm. If one of the spouses dies and the house is owned jointly, then the other spouse automatically gets it. That is not a probate asset. Whereas if you are married and have a spouse, but you your name is the only name on the title, right? and then you die, your spouse will have to probate your estate in order to transfer title to themselves. So I have a bank account that's just in my name, but I have a beneficiary listed or a POD person payable on death. So would that not go through probate then too because I've got somebody listed? Correct. Yeah. Yep. But if it was just sitting there in my name. Correct. So I had a case like that once where, and I try to advise clients, you know, especially where people are, have a spouse, a lot of times, not always, but most of the time they're wanting to benefit their spouse a hundred percent. Um, I try to say, let's see if we can avoid probate, at least on the first of you to pass away just by using joint tenancy or beneficiary designations. Cause I had a case once where the, husband and wife, husband passed away, and and hopefully this happens to me someday, but they had forgot about a bank account that had like $60,000 <laughs> in it. Well, you know, we're above that $50,000 yes. threshold, so the only way to get that money is to open a probate, which costs attorney money, attorney time. Yeah. So, and in Nebraska, at least, 
once you open a probate, absent, you know, very few exceptions, you're open for five months before oh. you can close by statute. Okay. You have to be open for five months. And that's credit for creditor protections, mostly. So when you open the probate, you, that's notice to creditors. There's a notice that runs in the newspaper once a week for three consecutive weeks, and they have 60 days to file their claim. So in your experience, do creditors come forward? Yes, all the time. Is there kind of a dollar amount? Like, I mean, if, if I owe, let's say, my dentist, I didn't ever pay my bill, but it's only 100 bucks, and I die. Oh, yeah. I've had bill people put in claims for $35. Really? Yeah. Huh. And then there's some places that once they have been notified that somebody passes away, they just write off their bill, right? So, it, it and it's kind of specific to whoever the creditor is. You know, some creditors, if it's bigger numbers, like for Nebraska, for example, like Nebraska Furniture Mart, if you have, you know, several thousand dollars that you owe on a refrigerator that you bought. So then your options are pay off the bill. Right. Or sometimes because they would have a secured interest in that refrigerator, you can return the refrigerator. Now it's not going to be worth the full amount. Right. But that then potentially would reduce the amount of the claim. So you hmm. can you can do in-kind <laughs> payback, right? In- interesting. Okay, so that's one way to to like pay off a creditor, I suppose, is give them the stuff back. Right. You see that with vehicles a lot too. Okay. Um, but as people know, you know, once you drive it off the lot, it's typically loses a lot of value. So you're usually the estate is still going to owe some money on the debt, but it can significantly reduce the debt if you return the item that it is secured on. So what happens once that notice goes out and we're kind of knee deep in probate court? So we kind of wait. So once once the creditor notice goes out, we're kind of collecting assets. So at that time, we set up an estate account. So the estate has its own tax ID number. And, and this all costs money, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So. It's it's not an easy <laughs> process to go. I mean, it is if you have somebody that's helping you, right? To go through it by yourself, I think, would be very difficult. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so you're setting up an estate account. You get a tax ID number for that account. You have your letters of personal representative because you've been appointed by the court. And then you're collecting the assets. So you're collecting the bank account money. You're collecting you know, you're figuring out what's going on with the house, if they owned a house, if they owned a vehicle, if they have, you know, retirement accounts and figuring out what are these assets and how are they, how are they titled? Insurance. Insurance, all those kinds of things. So, because if we're already in probate court, then we've identified that we have more than 50,000 in assets. Right. Right. Let me ask you this. You mentioned a personal representative and I know when I write a will, I get to pick who is my personal representative. In these cases where there's no will, how is the personal representative figured out? And I'm guessing there's a lot of fighting about this. Well, there, could be. there can be a lot of fighting, yeah, and it's a great question. So under the probate code, which is the statutes that kind of control how probate works, um, there is a statute for priority of appointment, okay? So if a person, and when you're opening an estate, at least in Nebraska, there's kind of two avenues. You've got informal or formal. Informal typically is, it was more common. Sure. And you can do it without a hearing and you file the paperwork and the court looks at it and says, okay, everything looks great. We're going to open the estate. But in those cases, when you're filing informally, you have to be the person that has priority of appointment. Okay. Okay. That's the only way that you can get that open estate without a hearing. 
So the first person who has priority of appointment is going to be somebody named in a will. If there is no will, then the next person who's going to have priority of appointment is a spouse who is also a beneficiary or a devisee of the estate. Okay. So if I die without a will, it would be my husband. Correct. And then, um, and then we go to um, adult children. So then, to, so in Nebraska, obviously we have you only have one spouse, right? So that's only one person that would right. have priority. But if you're in a situation where maybe the decedent didn't have a spouse or the spouse predeceased them, so then you get down and maybe there's three adult kids. Oh, well, yeah. in order to open informally. You pick one or two. You can have co-personal representatives if you want. But then the other one or two that aren't doing it, they have to sign a waiver of their right to appointment and nomination. So getting all those signatures. But if you can get all that stuff and file it, then you don't have to have a hearing. But if I go in there, I think I've I've shared before on this podcast, I'm one of six kids, right? So my parents pass away and I say, well, I should be it because I'm a lawyer and I do this every day, right? But if I don't have those signatures from the other five, then I have to provide notice to them and set a hearing. And then everybody and gets that costs to come. money. Right. And <laughs> the bill, you have to, the ticker's running. And you have to publish notice of that hearing, which is once a week for three consecutive weeks. So you're looking at at least probably five weeks before you're getting oh. in court. Yeah. Wow. So you're just kind of hanging out, right? Yeah. Whereas if you can do that informal route, it's much yeah. quicker, less expensive. Um, and if you have a will, then, and that, and you nominate, you know, you nominate your child to be the PR and they accept, they just file the paperwork and it gets opened right? and it takes a couple of days. So without a will, even just opening it takes if you, more steps. Yes. That's if, absolutely if, true. if you have to go this like multi-step process to get the PR. Right. I mean, I've had cases where, you know, a person passed away and they had one child. Yeah. Well, obviously that person is the person, right? And those are more simple. But if you've got multiple kids and then then you get into the issues of, you know, family dynamics or I have cases where the siblings are estranged. They're like, you know, my brother's homeless and I have no idea where he lives, you know, like. And so then you're you have to publish anyway because you have to try to find these people. Yeah. Wow. So it's. Um, it can get more complicated um, if you don't have things, you know, kind of written down. Yeah. So because so then you we're we're in probate, we're open, we've collected our assets. We get to a point where we don't think any more creditors are coming in. Right. So then we look at the numbers is are we in the positive or are we in the negative? OK, yeah. if we're in the positive, we're going to try to negotiate those creditors a little bit. Usually you can get somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of what they have claimed, depending okay. on what the claim is. Um, so they'll write off 20 to 30% maybe? Right. Sometimes, without really asking too many questions, okay. they'll, they'll, they'll say, if you write me a check today, I'll give you a discount, right? It's kind of like collections yes. in, when you're alive still. Right. Or here's my fridge with all the moldy food in it. Take it. Right, right, exactly. Or my car with all the junk. Dense. In. Yeah, yeah, dense. <laughs> um, and so... Then we kind of go through that period where we say, okay, we're going to pay these creditors. And then when you send them a check, the lawyer sends a satisfaction and release. So then the creditor can say, I've been paid. I'm not owed any more money and I'm not going to sue you for anything else. Because then that shows the judge you've satisfied the claim that has been filed. Okay. Um, If there's not enough money in the estate, then in your upside down, then you have to kind of figure out a schedule of distribution and you basically propose some sort of proration 
to these creditors. Um, and that could lead to a big old fight. Yep, and more attorney time and more more fees. And and that's crazy because the person who incurred the debt is no longer here. Yep. And their estate doesn't even really have the money to pay. And so there there yeah. are conversations that I've had with people where I say do nothing. I mean cuz after so many days a creditor can force a probate if they think that there's money. But a creditor is not going to want to pay an attorney $5,000 to go argue in an estate that doesn't have any money. Right. So really the only time where even if you have lower asset amounts where it would be required is to transfer real estate. So if you, even if, let's say the tax assess value, because that's typically what they use to determine whether a probate is required. Um, If the tax assess value on the property is $40,000, technically you don't need a probate. So then you're looking at, at transferring an affidavit um, for real estate, but you still have to do an inheritance tax determination to release the county's lien. Oh, sure. For inheritance tax. So you're still filing in court. Which is another lawyer, right? Right. Well, I do. So I do inheritance tax determinations <laughs> yes. as part of estate cases and or just stand alone. If you have a trust and you don't need a probate, then you just do the inheritance tax determination. But a, but an attorney for the government reviews that, right? County attorney. Yeah. Yep. yep. The county attorney <laughs> reviews that for the civil side. Yeah. Um, and they have to sign off on it. And then it's submitted to the judge and then the judge signs off. So it's still a process. There's a lot of hands in the... In the state world. Yeah. Yes. There definitely are. So what happens to... So now we're in the world where, okay, so let's say we've got all the, the, the creditors figured out or there aren't any, or debtors, or whatever we're calling it. Creditors, creditors. Yes. Um, at what point does can the probate be finalized then? So we satisfy creditors, then we we do our inheritance tax determination. And it used to be, at least my understanding was, if, if no tax was owed, then you wouldn't necessarily have to do a determination. But more and more judges are wanting, they're wanting the filings in the probate to show that there's no tax owed. So you're still having to, you have do, to prove it. Yeah, you're still having to do the determination of tax and get the signature from the county attorney, even if you don't have to pay any tax, right? So we're, we get done with that. And then once we're past our five months, cause, because in, so then you can close formally or informally, right. similarly to opening informally or formally. So closing informally, you're going to do a schedule of distribution where you're saying, you know, this is who's getting the money of the beneficiaries, right? So if there's two kids and they're each getting fit half, the yeah. schedule distribution is going to show, okay, they got half of this account and they got half of this account and we issued a new deed in their names if we didn't sell, right? That type of thing. Typically, the personal representative has to do an accounting unless the, the beneficiaries waive it, which is pretty common if, pe- if people are getting along. They right? would waive. Right, because yeah. they don't want to pay a lawyer you know, hundreds of dollars to write an accounting when they don't even care what's in it. Right. Right. So they can waive that. And then we do um, a statement of informal closing where we're saying, judge, we've done everything we're supposed to do. We've paid everybody and we want to close. And then if there's nothing pending in the estate for within one year after the date that you file that closing statement, the court will automatically close it. So technically it stays open for a year after you informally close, but you're not doing anything. It's just sitting there. Okay. Versus if you're doing a formal closing where you're saying, I want, as of the date that the order is signed, this estate is done. Nobody's coming back. Nobody's filing nothing. You have to do, you file a petition or application to to close formally. 
And then you publish notice and you send notice to everybody that you have contact for and you set it for hearing and then you have to go in front of the judge and you prove up your accounting and say, here's everything I've done. And the judge says, looks good. And they sign an order formally closing the estate. And then it's done as of that day. So now I've heard sometimes that these personal representatives can pay themselves for the time that it takes to work on the case. Is that true? Yes. So how is that figured out? So what's interesting is that the case law in Nebraska typically just talks about a reasonable fee, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> some states, like for example, Iowa, because I also do work over there, Iowa sets the personal representative's fee based on a percentage. So they get 2% of the value of the estate. Okay. Lawyers are also, their fees are set by statute. Whereas in Nebraska, most of the time, attorneys in Nebraska are charging hourly, especially in Omaha and Lincoln and some of the bigger areas. Sometimes in the smaller towns, you'll see where they do percentage, but um, it's more competitive. And to me, I think more fair, right? Because I'm just being paid for the work that I did. Because it's not fair for somebody who has a $10 million farm to have to pay 2% if I have to do the same work. Yeah. Right? So if you know what the asset is to probate it, it it doesn't change yeah. whether the farm is worth ten million or it's a house that's worth fifty thousand dollars. It's the same process. process in terms of probate. Yeah. Now you may have more administrative expenses, whether it's appraisals or you know if you have to do sometimes you have to do environmental stuff with farms. farms. Yeah. Right. So then the fee just increases, but it's just based on the hourly work, right? So, but personal representatives can pay themselves, and if everybody's in agreement, then you know the beneficiaries just say okay you've been paid this fee and we're all fine with it and there's nothing to argue about. Right. So I've had clients where I think there potentially could be an argument. I encourage clients to keep track of their time, you know, like just on a calendar, like I worked on this for an hour today right. or whatever. Making phone calls, organizing the paperwork, blah, blah, blah. But I try to get ahead of that as much as I can. Like if, And sometimes clients will waive their fee sure. because if you are taking a fee as a personal representative, that's income to the as far as the IRS is concerned, which uh, means you have to pay income tax on it. Yes. Well, whereas if you can receive it as part of your your beneficiary designation, you know, you're as a beneficiary, you're only at most in Nebraska paying the inheritance tax rate, which is potentially lower than your income tax bracket, right? So then you get into what makes more sense financially. Right. Take it as income or take it as a distribution. So so maybe that person if they're if it's a 50/50 situation, like two siblings, right. one of them's going to be the PR, they would agree that person's going to get a little bit extra. Well, potentially these, or yeah. sometimes they'll just they just won't take a fee. Sure. Right. Um or but like in cases like I had one where it was a bigger estate and there was eight beneficiaries. And so what we did is I, you know, sent out basically a letter to everybody and I'm like, here's the proposal. And I sent them a spreadsheet of this is how much money there is. The the personal representative slash trustee is proposing a 2% fee and that's what this number is. And, you know, if you're all in agreement, sign this paper, you know, and I got back all the yeah. signatures. And so then it's just done with. And probably some of those beneficiaries are just grateful someone else is doing the work. Absolutely. And they understand time is money and that person deserves to get paid for Yep. Helping them get their money because that that's what the personal representative is actually doing. Yep. And usually you find most of the time by the end of it when people are getting sent checks, they're just happy to sign and and, and they're like, sweet, now I have this awesome money. And right? I didn't have to go to court. Right. Ever. And fight with my siblings and or other beneficiary family members. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, so we've closed probate. Everybody got their money. Then what? Anything or is that it? I mean, that's it, you know, yeah. barring some sort of, and I, I haven't had an occasion recently to research in terms of statute of limitations. I know that in trust action, so like if you have a trust that holds assets that are being distributed, once you receive that accounting, your statute of limitations is one year. Um, you have to file if you're going to complain about something they yeah. did. You got one year. Um, I don't know off the top of my head the estates, but it's, I mean, I think in these types of situations, it's usually pretty limited. If you're going to be complaining about something, you're usually filing to remove the personal representative during the estate right. process because you don't like what's happening or whatever. But yeah, you close, you know, whether informally or formally, you close the estate and then, you know, hope everything went was supposed to and you're done. So. Yeah. In that situation still, um, does the personal representative still need to file if there was any income to the estate during the time, a, a tax return? Yep. So a lot of times we have that conversation about doing a tax return. And I always refer clients to a CPA because I'm not a CPA, but sure. my, based on my knowledge. Um, because an estate, whether you have a will or not, can earn income. Correct. But most of the time, depending on what your assets are, I would say, and whether, depending on the size of your estate, a lot of times there isn't enough income to require a return. But you let a CPA make that decision, exactly. right? Yeah. Exactly. I tell them, here's a, here's a person, call them and just, you know, belt and suspenders so we can all sleep at night. You know, you need to do their final tax return because most, I mean, not all the time, but in most cases that I've been involved in anyway, there's a return. Like, the IRS pays money back for the income in the year that they died. Right. Right. So like if a person died today, they would have income for all of 2021 almost that they would need to do a final tax return. But then the estate return for 2021 would be probably nothing. And 2022 when you would be closing, hopefully is nothing. And estates. So in Nebraska, they try to get you to have an estate completely done within like a year and I think it's like a year and four months or something. So then if you're not closed by then, then the Supreme Court is wondering, why are you still open? And right. then you have to start going into court every couple of months to talk to the judge and explain why you're not closed yet. So they kind of try to keep you on track yeah. a little bit. That doesn't happen to us, though, because we're really efficient, right? Yeah. I think <laughs> the only times it's really happened to me is just when you're waiting on, like, I've been waiting on the IRS in a case oh, for sure. almost two years. Yeah. And I've seen, like, estates where, I know of a state one time where the person owned property in another country. Oh. And so if you have to probate in multiple states, so here's yeah. another tip. If you, own, if you own property in multiple states, it's a good idea to get a trust. But yeah. let's say that you don't have one. So you would open a, a main probate in the, your state that you lived in at the time you died. And then you would have to open ancillary probates in all of these other states and countries that you also own property in in order to transfer based on their laws yeah. so that everything can come to, together as one. Right. So. Wow. It can be. So if you're waiting on other courts yes. that have different processes, you know, you just have to go into the judge and say, hey, you know, yeah. we're waiting on people in France. Sorry. <laughs> No against nothing against France. <laughs> and we're going to we're going to go there and just see how things are going. And <laughs> right? I take my lawyer Tasha with me and um, she's going to check on my farm property and meet with my French attorney. I love it. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Let's start marketing. Well, apparently we're doing really well on our podcast in Honduras. I'm not sure if there's property oh. out there that we could buy. There you go. Yeah. And Germany, too. Right. Yeah. I think it was Germany. Yeah. Well, Tracy always says good. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So. 
I mean, to wrap up, like at what level of assets can p- people say like, I'm probably okay without a will. And at what level is it like I should have a will? I, or is that not how you look at it? Well, and I, that's what I was going to say. I think it's not necessarily so much what your assets are and how much they're worth as it is, where do you want your assets to go? Because, and I'll use myself as an example. I am one of six children. I was adopted by my stepdad. So if my my father passes away second, right, if there's no will, then all six kids are benefited under the intestacy statutes, right? Because you... You are all direct beneficiaries from him. Right. Under the the fancy word is consanguinity, right? Which is by blood or in this case, adoption, right? So we're considered his children legally, all six of us. So we would all receive a one-sixth share of his estate if he didn't have a will. But conversely, my mom, she did not adopt two of the, three of the kids. And so if my mom passes away second without a will let's say she receives everything from my dad and my parents have a will and they've taken care of this because i made them but <laughs> but in the, in the situation where Crack they in the whip tasha i know in a situation where they didn't have their wonderful daughter telling them what to do and so the, your dad dies first so the, and his yeah. everything goes to let's say everything goes to your mom right but under the intestacy statutes because they don't share all the same children my mom wouldn't receive the entire estate right which may or may not be what my dad wants right and then let's say okay then my mom passes away second and she's received whatever she was going to receive my dad's three children are not in her chart of consanguinity so they would receive nothing they're stepchildren to your mom correct under the law stepchildren don't receive. Yeah. They're not entitled to anything under the intestacy statutes, which may or may not be what they want. Right. right? I mean, I know personally, obviously, my parents, that's not what they would want at right. all. They would want us all to share equally. Right. And so, but the only way to accomplish that in that type of a situation, you have to have a will. Otherwise, the intestacy statutes will govern. And, and it's pretty black and white. There's not a whole lot of negotiation there. So if you want to make sure that certain people get certain things, you need a will. Absolutely. That's the best way to do it. Yep. Well, so if this didn't inspire people to write a will, uh, I'm not sure what would because no one wants to end up at the end of the day after a funeral and after a passing trying to figure out who's going to get what. And arguing with people. You should be spending that time with your family, grieving and sharing memories and you know, being together and, yeah. and that sort of thing, not arguing in court about who gets mom's house. Right. Well, thanks, Tasha. This has been awesome. I I always learn something new whenever I talk to you. And, you know, I, I, I just can't imagine having to go through this and not having someone like you on my side. So thank you. Well, you're very Appreciate welcome. Appreciate all of this. It's a and now I know what consang whatever means. Consanguinity. Gwinity. Gwinity. All right. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. And be sure to like and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. If you would like to learn more about our firm, Hightower Rep Law, please visit our website at hrlawomaha.com. We'll see you next week.